Hey everyone, exciting announcement here from the Blockworks Podcast Network. We are hiring two podcast hosts to build a show with us called Lightspeed. The TLDR of Lightspeed is that it is a show for builders, tinkerers, and lovers of technology. It's a callback to the heyday of Silicon Valley where great tech was built in garages, not in corporate fortresses, and was truly the Wild West. Lightspeed is an exploration of crypto from the perspective of a builder and an engineer who's designing for scale and is interested in onboarding the next billion users into crypto. If this show sounds exciting to you, you have a background in podcast hosting or content creation, go to the careers page of BlockWorks. That's blockworks.co slash careers. I've also linked it in the show notes here. You can just click there. It'll take you right to the page. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm Mike Ippolito underscore. You can just slide right into my DMs and we'll set up some time to talk. We'd love to hear from you. We are super, super excited about this show. So please apply. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Forward Marginal Guidance. Mark Yusko is at a wedding today. Miss you, Mark. Uh, so today I'm joined by my colleague, Jack Farley, and together we make up Forward Marginal Guidance. Jack, welcome to the show. Great to be back, Mike. Let's get into it. Let's do it. So, Jack, you've been uh, you've been doing a lot of really great interviews these past uh, couple months on banks, and I feel like you've become sort of the resident banking expert at at Blockworks, um, so you've got a couple of great charts, and I'd love to really get your get your understanding of what's going on in the banking system. And maybe we can start by digging in here. So, what we're looking at here is a chart of um, the discount window, which is sort of this perpetual program that the Fed lets banks borrow from, and then this new shorter term program, the the bank term funding program, which was a program that was created in the wake of the SVB blow up. So, can you walk us through? Um, Actually, maybe just kind of start with your high level of what's going on at banks and then kind of walk us through this chart here. Right. So the discount window, also known as the primary credit, that's existed for over 100 years. And banks can access that for capital, but they have to pay. They have to pay for it. You know, it's not free. And importantly, there's a stigma attached with it. Uh, you know, the Federal Reserve releases who the participants are. On the other hand, the bank term funding program was announced on March 12th. Uh, two days after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. It was a Sunday, the day before the markets opened, by the way. And that is similar to the discount window, but it allows banks to pledge their assets at face value. So if you have a, a you know asset that the, you bought it for $100 or it was trading for $100, at the end of the day, you get back $100, but it's now trading for $80. You can actually get $100 from it from the Fed, whereas the discount window, you'd only get $80 and actually probably less because there'd be a, a haircut. Uh, and also, you can borrow, as the word term suggests, you can borrow for uh, up to up to a year. And so it's basically, the, you know, the Federal Reserve is allowing the banks a year to sort of figure everything out. We saw a huge upsurge in the use of the discount window as you know, the black line uh, the, the week after the fall of Silicon Valley Bank. And the use of the bank term funding program uh, continued to edge higher, as you can see in sort of the, the red pink line. I think that was banks and bank treasury departments are used to the knowing the discount window. You know, when you when you start on the job, they say, okay, this is how the discount window works. Whereas the bank from term funding program, everyone was kind of learning in real time. But I think the, the bank treasurers realized that the BTFP, as it's called, is preferable to the discount window in almost every way, uh, especially to the fact that the reporting of who uses the bank term funding program is delayed. What uh, has given... Many, and I would include myself in this many, uh, uh, some hope and uh, sort of allayed our fears is the continued decline in use of the discount window, uh, as well as the use in the BTFP. Uh, the Federal Reserve, yes, yeah, still has 
a balance sheet of you know well over a hundred billion dollars that is given to these programs, um, and that's why if you look at Federal Reserve balance sheets with you know people associated with Bitcoin, uh, hmm. it's it's had it risen sh- sharply. That's why people say it's quantitative easing back, although it actually has fallen uh, over the past three three weeks. And so these are the assets of the Federal Reserve, uh, the liabilities of the commercial banks. They they have borrowed that. So this is sort of the macro plumbing from the Federal Reserve's point. Uh, this data has been released every week, you know, every Thursday, you know, you know for, for a very long time. So we've gotten a window of this in March. The bank earnings uh, started to be released um, last week, and that is where we sort of see the commercial bank side, which actually also uh, looks good. So, uh, yeah, back to you, Mike. <laughs> so, Jack, like. To dig into that that last point that you were starting to talk about there, I mean, the general perception, right, is it, it, as as always when it comes to issues of monetary plumbing or what the Fed is really doing and what these numbers all mean, there have been sort of two different interpretations, right, which is, hey, the Fed's balance sheet is kind of the single source of truth, right, which no one can really lie about. There are lots of different interpretations for what it means, but generally that number go up is has has generally correlated to monetary easing of some kind or call it the Fed is basically stepping in and intervening with showing that there's you know, signs of a pivot in terms of some kind of monetary policy. On the other hand, um, which is sort of what I heard you just say is like, look, that when when Fed, when banks are using this new uh, BTFP facility or the discount window, that should be seen as a lifeline to banks. That means that the banking system is in trouble. That means that there's going to be some upcoming contraction of credit, and that is not a time to flip bullish. So can you kind of help contextualize um, from like your perspective, how do you interpret these these numbers? It is a great dichotomy that has confused me and continues to confuse me, but I, I think I can maybe provide a, a little insight is that the Fed's balance sheet, all things being equal, always, it just means more money, more high-powered bank money, bank reserves are in the system. That always is an easing system. But why would they do that? They do that in terms of stress. So, you know, firefighters, they help fires. They put out fires. But firefighters are typically around fire, you know? So it was in March 2020 when the Federal Reserve did this intense amount of quantitative easing because there was a global plumbing crisis that uh, was, was extremely severe. Um, and likewise, by the way, people they say quantitative easing, Fed's bu- buying of, of bonds, that coincides with interest rates rising or um, bond yields, long-term bond yields rising. That's true as well. But I think that's because they do quantitative easing in a sort of a slowdown when interest rates are low, the long, mm-hmm. long-term bond yields are low. So, and then, then they go up. So it's, it's, it's all about um, timing. I'd also note that the um, extension of, of credits, th- there's a difference uh, between buying an asset and lending against an asset. So, uh, you know, if I if I buy a bond, if the Fed buys a bond and it sells it ten years later, that's just quantitative easing, and then it did quantitative tightening to get it off the balance sheet. But not really, actually, because the the the, the, the dichotomy between a loan and a purchase really breaks down because. That's how repo works: is you purchase it for a day and then you sell it back for a day. So it it really depends on how long it's going to be there. The assumption is that it won't be there for a long time, and there's a lot of good reasons for that. But yeah, if if the Fed's balance sheet continues to expand and these loans become, oh, you know what, we're just going to keep it, then then that would be form of quantitative easing. I've heard people say quantitative teasing. Uh, 
Concordia, Concordia on uh, Twitter said that. And I think that is a good way of putting it, quantitative teasing. I agree with that. I agree. You know, for me, it's it's such a wonky sort of topic, right? And there are definitely, there's a whole spectrum of of people who actually have knowledge about this stuff. And I would definitely throw Joseph Wang in that group, who you do an enormous amount of great content with. And then there are there are the uninformed masses like me who just sort of speculate <laughs> about about what it might mean. Uh, so it's great to get your your perspective here on that, Jack. Um, you, you've got some some other charts here as well that I want to sort of get into. So um, Jack, walk us through uh, for the people who are, are not following on via video. What are we looking at with this chart? This is a chart of Western Alliance Bank Corporation, one of the regional banks whose stock collapsed utterly the Monday after the fall of Silicon Valley Bank. And as you know, if people can zoom in on the text on the left, this is what it says. The stock uh, fell, then depositors withdrew money. The stock fell more, depositors withdrew money. It was a vicious cycle. And I generally think that when CEOs uh, blame short sellers on their poor performance, uh, I think it's a totally lame excuse. It's a bad sign. Yes. But I think there is something where financial corporations where when the stock falls, if you're a counterparty, you say, hey, what's going on? Like, you know, your, your, your team, you got to send a team to make sure everything's going okay. Maybe we'll, we'll withdraw some money. The stock falls farther. You do get into that vicious cycle. Uh, Western Alliance Bank Corporation had seen some pretty vicious outflows uh, the week or two weeks after Silicon Valley, you know, early March. Uh, and they had said reports that their deposits, uh, you know, they, they said our deposits, the deposit outflow has stalled considerably. And the First Republic said the same thing, but there weren't a lot of details. And it's like, well, yeah, if 10% if, if of your assets are leaving every day, and it's went down from 10% to 1% leaving every day, that's still a big problem, you know? Uh, but they didn't provide details. But then Western Alliance actually did provide details. So actually, I think a lot. You know, what, what's released here actually, you know, for people who were following the stock, uh, it was released prior. So the stock rallied huge on this, on this graph, basically, but the data was released beforehand. Uh, but so this shows definitively that for Western Alliance, the deposit outflows have not only slowed considerably, not only stopped, but actually re-accelerated into inflows. So people are putting their money back. Uh, don't have a ton of data on the new deposit rates for how much the banks are paying for that money. But this is kind of par for the course for what we've seen out of many banks uh, is that the uh, outflows of, of deposits, something in the, in the range of... Uh, you know, five percent, ten percent, but nothing that was, uh, you know, w what was feared uh, that it that would lead to this cascade. Um, so I saw actually a Bloomberg reporter interview the CEO of Bank of America, Brian Moynihan, and they're even they're using they're they're saying that the word crisis is too dramatic now. They're saying the the reporter who who I think is fantastic. He said he's like, should we call it a tremor instead instead of the crisis? <laughs> Uh, so yeah, maybe, I mean, look, you know, we like to, we like to, uh, stir the pot here at Blockworks out here at Marge Affordable Guidance. In my book, it's a crisis, but it's possible that we will call it the March banking crisis or the March banking panic, not the 2023 banking crisis, you know, like so, so far things are looking good. I don't have a crystal ball and, uh, you know, I'm not going to pop it out, uh, on, on this <laughs> show, but things, the, the deposit story is looking a lot 
better on, on uh, regional banks. Yeah. Hey there. Sorry to interrupt. Announcement. Blockworks is hosting an event called Permissionless in September. It's a crypto event. It's in Austin, Texas. We did Permissionless in 2022. It was the biggest and best DeFi event in the world. And this year, Lightning will be striking twice. Historically, our ticket prices have gone up about 10 times from the day the tickets go live to the day before the event. If you're like me and bad at math, that's 900%. So it might be savvy for attendees to consider buying tickets now rather than later. If you're listening to this and you're saying, Hey, Jack, I'm not really into this whole crypto thing. I want to hear about the Fed. I want to hear about the dollar, Bretton Woods, three, four, five. I hear you. I'm not telling you to buy a ticket and the interview will resume momentarily. However, if you are into the crypto thing and permissionless is something you might want to attend, what I'm saying is there's no time like the present because tickets will go up and if history is any guide, prices will go up a ton. Anyway, the link is in the description and you can get an additional 10% off by using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. Yeah, I haven't gone nearly as deep into the subject as you have, obviously, but it does seem like we've we've definitely passed through the worst of it. And you know, correct me if I'm wrong here. I'm I'm pretty sure I, in in basically the the thick of this and in, in the the heat of the panic, so to speak, pretty sure I heard Joseph talk about Western Alliance Bank as being something that uh, he'd be potentially interested in. And uh, the stock price, you know, to that to you met you mentioned that kind of negative reinforcing cycle, right? When the stock goes down and deposits are also leaving the bank, there's this sort of negative reinforcing cycle. And I think he called actually in the midst of that, that this would be an interesting stock. And it's done obviously quite well since. Um, I, I would I'd love to, and, and this is, and the reason I think that we're looking at this chart, right, Jack, is because Western Alliance is a, it's, you know, sort of your, your standard regional bank, right? And there was definitely a, a period of concern where I think this in this particular banking crisis, the Bank of Americas or the JP Morgans were honestly never really, people were never really that concerned. Although the vast majority of those unrealized losses on the held to maturity part of banks' books actually did come from Bank of America. There's something like $100 billion in unrealized losses from Bank of America. But people are really worried about the, the small regional banks. And they've actually fared, I think, a lot better than some of the doomsayers uh, certainly said. I, I would love to, um, I don't know if we've got, uh, uh, this is a specific chart I want to get into later, but can you just talk, Jack, if you, I don't know how much you paid attention to the uh, the bank earning calls uh, over the past week, but we've had GPM and Bank of America release. There were a couple standout uh, sort of quotes for me about uh, retail spending and sort of this continued strength in the economy. But uh, any any details that you want, anything, I don't know how much you, you tuned into those those earnings releases, but any takeaways from from your side? So, so first, I'd like to say, uh, Joseph, we, in an interview that was filmed on the Monday, where it was total crisis after Silicon Valley Bank failed, mm. uh, going into that interview, I was just looking through the regional bank stocks, and yeah, Western Alliance just utterly just sort of you know, I remember that and, it was tanking. And, yeah, it was tanking, and so Jason. Uh, Finder Blockworks and I interviewed Joseph Wang. You know, great to introduce the, the two of them. And mm. so th th that was literally the day and the single hour where probably bank stocks were were at their lowest. Uh, probably if you look at the KB, you know, W Regional Banking Index. Uh, Joseph, important to say, he never mentioned uh, Western Alliance by name. Uh, I put wrote a tweet about it where I, I see why you might thought that. But yeah, but he was he was utterly in the face of this panic. He was like, yeah, I think everything's going to be okay. And yeah, uh, I've been listening to that. Too. Some buying opportunities, you know. And you know, Joseph never gives investment advice, but um, yeah, that that call has has aged quite well. Regarding mm. bank earnings, 
Um, yeah, the, this, if you look at the credit card volumes, uh, they are up considerably, uh, but the rate of spend uh, continues to decline. Um, for, for Amex, I know it was up a lot. For Bank of America, you know, not so much. I know people spending on gas, it was down 5%, but that's heavily dependent on the, the price of gas. Um, right. So if you look at Bank of America uh, spending on, on credit and debit cards, people are spending on travel and entertainment, 16% more, 8% more on food, 7% more on retail. This is uh, the quarter of the first quarter of 2023 compared to the first quarter of 2022. So year over year growth. And that's good news. But keep in mind, that's not adjusted for inflation. So on services, their net net spending zero for retailer, their spending has gone down 7%, uh, adjusting for inflation for food, you know, they've, you know, seven, 1% or 0%. Uh, and for, for retail, they're actually, you know, sales have gone down, gone down 7% and uh, stuff like that. So it's, no longer sort of the bumper crop uh, narrative, but sending is still growing modestly and it is way better than sort of the recession doomsayers were saying in uh, third or fourth quarter of last year. So pretty good on the spending. Uh, and also the credit story continues to, to, seem, to seem good. Like Bank of America's net charge-offs are how much you know, they are charging off for their loans because people are not, not paying them back. Uh, that I th- I, uh, Bank of America CEO say it's one third of 2019 levels. So it's you know people saying credit losses have gone up five times. Yeah, it went up from 0.01 percent to 0.05 percent, and the a- the average over the past 50 years is four percent. So it's it's you know coming up from from absurdly low levels. I know uh, American Express also people are spending a lot of money there. Don't don't have the stats with me. Uh, one thing I'll show as well. Is that uh, JP Morgan's? They actually grew their deposits um, over the first quarter, which is pretty strong. You know, that's strong. the banking crisis, that's... and they actually grow their deposits. And that was those, those those people withdrawing their money from regional banks and parking it right. in, in those large banks. So yeah, yeah, that doesn't seem wildly surprising to me. Actually, that was kind of the that was the overwhelming narrative when the bank crisis was happening. Is that you hear that giant sucking sound? That's all the deposits in the banking system going to to JP Morgan. But let, let me let me get your. Um, you know, Jack, I think one thing that has surprised, we've talked about it with with uh, Mark on the show before, but I would love to get get your sort of thoughts here. Uh, maybe we can go a little bit back and forth on this, but I think one thing that's been surprising a little bit is that resiliency that you were just talking about in the U.S. economy. And, you know, last year we had the greatest contraction in our monetary levels, you know, going back, pick your time frame, you know, 100 some, some odd years. And you know, honestly, financial assets, stocks in particular, that's the S&P has held up pretty well, right? Some of the extremely high growth, very low profitability tech got, stocks, they got taken to the woodshed. Crypto got taken to the woodshed. So those very uh, duration, high duration, interest rate sensitive portions of the economy obviously got smoked. But overall, things have held up pretty darn well. Um, and I guess at this particular period in time, it's a little bit interesting because the S&P is sort of holding up pretty well in terms of the year so far. It looks like even though we might get our 25 basis point hike in this next FOMC, we're probably nearing the end of the rate cycle. And some people are in the higher for longer sort of camp. And some people think the Fed is going to reverse course sooner rather than later. But it seems like at this point, we've got the bulk of the this rate, hike, rate, rate hiking cycle in our rearview mirror. So what is your kind of overall thought for where we are in the cycle right now 
A, a lot of things. So I think that the SP 500 dominated by a few uh, mega cap tech stocks, and their earnings. It's not that their their earning estimates you know went, went down so much they did, but their earnings actually went down. Like Apple was making less money, Google making less money, Facebook was making a lot less money. Facebook was you know spending billions and billions on the metaverse. Investors were not happy, and the the stock down a tremendous amount from uh, its, its all time highs. I you know they basically announced that they're relaxing the spend, so they were laying off people, and that really really accelerated the earnings and. Uh, yeah, Wall Street likes it. If Meta, the stock of Meta has more than doubled um, since its lows in the fall. And that is a huge story for the S&P 500. Like all these, you know, the tiny banks that we're talking about, I think First Republic is in the S&P 500. Uh, but, you know, that didn't really re register. Uh, it, it's it's all about Apple, all, all, the, all those big ones. Um, earnings estimates fell. And as did, you know, interest rates rose. But we had a reversal of that uh, in October. So yeah, interest rates fell. And then the economic data in terms of people are spending, like we are not in a recession yet. Uh, I mean, maybe we're at the beginning of a recession. But you know, people from American Express were spending, spending a lot of money. So the recession that the market had been fearing uh, has not yet occurred. And interest rates have fallen. So future cash flows from stocks are uh, worth more. Um, and... Yeah, th things go up. You know, it's easier to be to be <laughs> long and short. What can I say? Yeah, no, I'm I'm sort of in agreement with you there. So, I guess for for you, I mean the the sort of reset the important part of that being the consumer spending part of a recession, right? There's and kind of consumer spending and unemployment tend to not necessarily right like month over month, but they tend to walk hand in hand over a period of time. So. You know, we had uh, Julian Brigden on the show this week, and we were talking about it's absolutely foolish to to expect that there's going to be no landing whatsoever, right? So, and I, I sort of agree with that. I still think their monetary policy acts in long and variable lags. You know, we didn't get our first hike. It, it seems like we've been hiking forever now, but the pace of hikes have just been very, very steep. And we actually started, you know, mid last year. So this would be around the time when we start to feel the long and variable lag of monetary policy. And maybe their very first brush of that was the banks. But it seems like there's definitely still, you know, kind of another shoe to to drop. But, you know, I, I've been kind of struggling these last couple of weeks because I sort of feel like we're in this this wait and see mode where, you know, we get these reports from the banks and there are sort of it's kind of a mixed review, right? There's still, you know, some inclinations of consumer strength, but earnings are falling a little bit. And uh, I'm sort of waiting, at least at least for me, Jack, I'm sort of in this um, in this mental limbo where I'm kind of waiting for the market to tip its hand in one way or the other. And the uh, the light, the less optimistic part of of my brain says, hey, there has to be some other kind of shoe to drop here at some point. I'm just waiting for where that might materialize sort of first. So I'm, I'm kind of asking you to put on your uh, your speculator cap here or uh, your your much higher level uh, sort of thinking, uh, the, the higher level thinking part of your brain. But where do you think we might um, sort of see that materialize first? What would you be looking at? Well, you know, Mike, you've seen me uh, sort of grow and you know mature. And as I get older, definitely I don't know about wiser, but as I get older... You age like a fine wine, Jack. Yeah, yeah. I, I, things are different. You know, I, like I used to say, I'm bearish. That's going down. <laughs> But now I say I'm cautious. 
<laughs> you know, and that's why I noticed a lot of people who've got the you know big jobs, Wall Street firms, they don't say they're bearish. They just say I'm cautious. You know, I used to say someone said something, I say, no way. There's no way that's gonna happen. Now I say, you know, that's not my my base case. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I would say I'm I would say I'm I'm cautious. Uh I had been uh pretty optimistic, I'd say, on some uh, bank stocks after those uh, sell-offs. Uh, I would say I'm actually pretty optimistic right now on commercial real estate uh, investment trust. And people say, "Oh my God, Jack, you've been doing all these doomsday interviews. Like, what are you? What are you talking about?" I'm not. I think the, all of the pain that's coming is in the private markets, in the private debt, in the loans that you know some regional banks made to. Uh, properties that are you know being valued at the, the values are, are much different now. But in terms of like the real estate investment trust, and if people see my other interviews, like they know the sort of tickers that I'm thinking about. Yeah, those uh, those might be pretty well positioned. Broad market. I mean, it's tough. I I, I don't think. Yeah, I, I don't think we're gonna have a raging bull market uh, that's continuous to to, to start. Um, but a crash. I mean, I, I would say chop, chop continues. I mean the the huge rally in crypto uh that's taken me by surprise. Um I mean are people are people getting pretty bullish now? I mean are, is it has the price of bitcoin actually doubled from its lows? Is that, is that or is it almost close to there? Almost. almost. Yeah. yeah. Not not at the I I think it's on a little bit of a sell off at the at the current moment and it's down back around 28,000 but no, I don't think people in in crypto are are largely that excited about about things. I mean, I think the reason I think the reason crypto has outperformed these last couple months is is simply because of the amount of as much forced selling as there was in the economy. I know last year was the worst year for the 60-40 portfolio and again, the last 100 years or so. But for crypto, it was truly a horrendous year in that we had two major episodes of forced selling, right? We had the explosion of Terra Luna and then we had the explosion of FTX and that triggered you know, outside of the the general macro cycle of contraction in in high duration, very risky tech assets like crypto. So crypto would have already been under an enormous amount of stress, but the forced selling just really added to that. And then there's some amount of, you know, sort of strength that comes after a forced selling episode like that. The FTX after I think that the FTX episode was an inflection point for me because we just didn't put in a new low after that. And when there's a horrible event, uh, that should trigger a new low in a market, and it doesn't. It's just kind of a sign, right? That you should sort of pay attention to. So I think crypto strength this year has been less of a things are looking better than just some amount of mean reversion because of just how horrendous the very tail end of 2022 was, if that makes sense. But I remain, as you know, very optimistic about crypto writ large. Yes, a, f a few things that. You know, I, I'm not even saying I have a position in this, but just look interesting. Like, uh, marijuana cannabis stocks are in a brutal, brutal bear market that yeah. they looked brutal six months ago, and there's like, there's no way they can go lower, and they have. So <laughs> I don't know. There, there could yeah. be some people who could take advantage of that pain. I mean, people, you know, people like to use the products. Apparently, <laughs> <laughs> that joke made me laugh way harder than it should have, Jack. Uh, but yes, yeah, you're absolutely right. And those cannabis businesses are are pretty interesting. We have a 
a mutual friend who who's uh, pretty tied up in in that space and sort of the one of the the bull cases for owning cannabis but it makes it difficult to own it at this particular moment in time is similar to crypto it's very it's very difficult for institutions to invest in cannabis right now it's very difficult for cannabis companies to get access to the US banking system just like it is for crypto and there's kind of a, a thesis out there in investing, which is if it's if there's a good fundamental reason to own something, but for whatever reasons X, Y, and Z, it's very difficult to own today. You know, there's it's probably a pretty good thing to invest in over the long term because at some point those more mechanical reasons for for making it difficult to own are going to go away, and then you know you'll get sort of price discovery. The question is, when is that going to happen? And I think that's that's the difficult thing. So. I'm not really sure what it is that's holding up cannabis. I think regulation is moving a lot slower than the pro cannabis industry, you know, would have wanted it to would have wanted it to look like. And I think banks still don't like cannabis. It was actually in an, I don't know if you watched this last season of Billions, but that was like a whole it's like a whole uh, storyline there. So I don't know. Cannabis isn't exactly my my lane, but that's that's how I kind of think about it. Yeah, I think the sort of tail risk protection strategies have been taken to the woodshed and like just commodity uh, trading advisors, CTAs, and then tail risk strategies have performed abysmally uh, over the past few months. And, you know, like owning owning uh, tail risk protection are so sort of put up very, very out of the money, put options, things that make money in very bad states of, of the world. Those ha- uh, strategies have not performed well. And also like just the VIX is just, really really you know it's just like 30 day implied volatility um it, it, it continues to decline and just this thing where people oh my god the market's going to crash and then it never does it's just been a br- brutal time for that so i don't don't know i i mean i would say over the next two years there will be a time when volatility performs well um so if like i'm not saying i'm not saying people should put their, some hedges on like the, but if you were going to put it on I think it's objectively just based on the pricing now a much better hedge now now that the VIX is at like 17 or 18 than when it was at 40 because when it was at 40 everyone's worried and that's when everyone wants to put you know hedges on. Um so yeah there's that the total the total market I don't know I mean I'm, I'm I would say I'm cautious on the total market. <laughs> I'm cautious. Yeah. Um true. bank we got to talk about okay so I said a lot of nice things about the banks I pretty much pointed out all the positives. Mm. from the companies themselves and you want to hear from the, the companies themselves but the federal reserve's beige book where they talk to district banks uh yeah I think it happens eight times a year that was extremely extremely grim news uh, basically mm. they they talked to all, all bankers and they said that financial conditions are deteriorating and that they said several districts noted that banks had already tightened lenders centers across the u.s uh I would say it actually most I, I counted it and it, like setting seven of the 12 said it. So most districts uh, like are, are, are noting that banks are tightening lending standards. You know, uh, let me see Dallas in, in Dallas, like pri- uh, loan uh, pricing is, is more expensive. Bank outlooks continue to deteriorate. Uh, contacts expecting contraction in loan demand and activity. Uh, they expect an increase in non-performing loans. In Richmond, some banks had stopped lending for new commercial uh, construction projects. Um, construction projects. 
Uh, many noted the citing looming issue of certain commercial back security loans coming due in 2023. So I would say it's pretty uh, pretty cautious tidings if you if you read that you know bank uh, a Fed bank base report and you can sort of just you know search through titles like you know words like tight tighten or, or or banking and you can sort of get those quotes and I, I also did a, a thread on it so yeah I mean I think bank, the economy runs on credit and uh, banks extending it and I think they're going to be a lot more cautious uh, going forward like a lot more so yeah and then yeah I think the economy is going to weaken quite dramatically I would say that's probably my base case and I, I think I think it's it's now you know like I in October it's like okay it's going to happen but like when and there were people who said oh it's going to happen now but I wasn't among them but I would say yeah it's I'd, I'd say it's here um but don't expect that oh just because we're going to enter a recession the price of oil is going to instantly collapse like the price of oil in 2008 uh had a huge surge you know many months into the recession that was uh people you know people didn't know it was a recession in May 20, 2008 but Later, it was realized it started in December uh, 2007. Um, so yeah, price price of oil could spike. And China is... I'm a believer in the China story. A lot of, a lot of people aren't, but I'm a believer. Um, mm. Like, There's just tons of, of pent-up savings and people being locked. Basically, you know, their homes being turned into prisons for, for two years. And now the government is telling them, oh, like, you know, go visit your cousin in Guangzhou. Like, uh, so yeah, I think, I think, uh, um, domestic travel as well as international travel, uh, is going to continue to, it already has spiked further. And this is, you know, a lot of people criticize the Chinese data for good reason. And, you know, a lot of those people know a lot more than I do. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm a believer in the China story. So, so, and China is a huge demand on, on commodities. So the, the U S is economy has been very strong. It's weakening. In my opinion, I think it's going to enter a recession. Uh, China has been in a very, very bad economic state, somewhat self-inflicted uh, because of your, their your policy quarantine. Um, but you know they're they're reaccelerating, they're emerging from a recession. So it's an interesting, you know, when people use the phrase "cross currents," that's a lot what they're of what they're referring to. Hey there, sorry to interrupt. A lot of forward guidance listeners are not into crypto. If that's you, please skip ahead, get back to the interview. Some Forward Guidance listeners are into crypto, some own crypto, a smaller percentage owning lots of crypto, and a much smaller percentage work at crypto hedge funds. If you're in those latter two categories, BlockWorks Research might be a good fit for you. BlockWorks Research is a research and data platform that analyzes governance, tokenomics, and models of interesting crypto projects, including new protocols. There's a lot of edge that can be gained from reading these reports. You can check out a sample report at www.blockworksresearch.com research and hit the free report toggle. If that is of interest, full subscriptions can be purchased at www.blockworksresearch.com sign up. You can also get 10% off using the discount code guidance10. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. Yeah, so I, I would tend to agree with you, Jack. And I would, I would, yeah, I would remind people that especially when you look at something like the unemployment rate, we are at historically very low levels, right? And even a, a large move <clears throat> in the unemployment rate would bring us to something like historical norms or even historical lows, right? So it feels like that is sort of destined to, you know, some amount of mean reversion to normal levels. And 
you know, the you know talk has been of ever since the banking crisis, the the March banking crisis, right? The uh, the, the tremor, been, right? The tremor, tremor, the tremor, exactly. Uh, you know, we've been talking about liquidity and and stability in the financial system, but we you know you got to remember that the Fed has has been talking for almost a full year about its focus on the labor market, and the labor market and wage growth remains tighter than the Fed would ultimately like. So usually the Fed, to be honest, as much as much flack as the Fed gets on this show and on forward guidance, they usually get what they want. So I would, if if you're a market participant, I would just keep that in mind. The China story, I'd, I'm, I'm with you, Jack. I, I don't think it's a bad proxy for looking at what happened to demand in the United States after we opened up here. And now in China, it's a much larger populace, certainly, and they've been locked up for twice as long. So I would expect the same. It's not animal spirits. It's real consumer spending sort of spirits like, hey, I haven't been able to do what I've wanted to do for the last two years. I'm going to go out and do that. And now the government actively is encouraging them and wants them to do that. So I think it's perfectly reasonable to expect that there's going to be a surge in activity. Now, people were calling for this a couple of months ago. It didn't manifest back then. But you know the the trick for these sorts of calls is is timing. So I tend to I tend to agree with you on the the China story. Yes, and the Chinese stock market has had been performing abysmally, but in October that all changed, and you had a huge rally from October to I think about January, and then that got a lot of people in. Oh, China's back! They piled on the stocks. Of course, when everyone piles on the stocks, it's not going to perform well. So yeah, I've had a little bit of a, of a hiccup, a little bit of a sort of stutter step in the Chinese equity markets, but the data has been strong, and that's you mm. know, that's when people say, "Oh, stocks rally first at, because they're anticipating the future, and then when the when there's future good economic news, people are like, "Oh, it's time to buy stocks," but they were already too late." And I guess that's what people are saying now about the rallying stock stock market, but the economic data is still so good that I don't know. It's one of those things where. All the sort of Wall Street uh, uh, strategists who, you know, they didn't get into that seat by being bearish or by being cautious. Let's put it that way. But all of them, even they are just like, we're, we're cautious because the economy is slowing and, you know, people are paying off their, their credit cards. They're paying off their loans because uh, the unemployment rate is low. But the Federal Reserve is like focused on a hawk on making that change uh, in order to bring down inflation. So, yeah, but, you know, just because everyone is bearish. That can cause squeezes and people to rally, but I'm not a you know, it's the Yogi Bear quote of like, just because everyone says I'm ugly doesn't make me beautiful, you know, like, <laughs> like if if you know the, the, the that everyone is bearish is not the best bullish argument, I I think. Yeah, I tend to I tend to agree with you on that. There's something about market positioning, right? When there's everyone is bearish or or on sides for one particular trade that. You know, makes the market vulnerable to reversions, right? So if everyone's bearish, it kind of sets up the the dynamic is sort of set up for small bull runs, basically. But I agree that doesn't necessarily that's not indicative of the direction that the market wants to go in. But but yeah, I, I would I would tend to agree with you. So I mean, what what kind of uh, time frame are we talking about here for your for your sort of thoughts, Jack, on being on being cautious on the market? Do you you know when you kind of close your eyes and sort of try to you know, try to summon your your crystal ball energy or your Ouija board or whatever uh, of your your preferred device of choices for for making these sorts of predictions. I mean, do we have you know twelve months or so left of of pain? Is that what you're kind of thinking? Because I don't know. I I hear you on I, it hasn't for for me. 
this would feel like us getting off easy, right? If things just ended here and the economy turned back up and we've still got a tight labor market. And I, I do think there is still some more wood to chop there. But on the other hand, I'm thinking to myself, like, we've gotten through the worst of the hiking cycle. And the time to be bearish was, or cautious, the time to be cautious overall was 12 months ago, more so than it than it certainly makes sense today. So again, I'm, you know, I'm, um, I'm not doing good media on this particular podcast. I'm just waffling through two points of view, but I'm uh, I'm stuck here, Jack. I'm I'm in my my mental limbo, as I, I sort of described before. So, how would you contrast that that kind of idea that I understand, you know, why you're cautious? It doesn't seem like we've gotten out of the woods yet, but at the same time, would you say the bulk of the the time to be cautious is behind us? Or give me your like, try to maybe zone in a little bit, get a little more granular on your your thoughts for how much pain we've got left. I mean, I, for the economy, no way, uh, no way, not even close. Uh, yeah, the, the recession has not started, but I think it will. And by the way, if I'm wrong about that in a year, I will publicly admit it. And you know, that's what I I, I hope people um, you know know that about me. Uh, but yeah, on the uh, stocks are tough because the timing is different, and really, no one knows. You know, you, you see, you see, Moneyball. I have. Yeah, so you know, there's uh, Brad Kit, Brad Pitt character is the coach talking to the uh, scout, and the scout like knows everything. He's like, "Oh, he's a good-looking guy." The ball explodes off his bat. Blah 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 blah. And Brad Pitt's like, "Look, you 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 walk around acting like you know. When I know, I know, and you don't. And that's how I feel like a lot of people on the market call. Like, you know, no one knows. Everyone was super bearish. Uh, you know, in in October, many people were, and now that the stock market has rallied. Now they're suddenly turning bullish. And, you know, there, there are people who, you know, in the investment strategist business, that's pretty much what they do. They tell you what happened yesterday and they make it seem like it's a prediction. Um, I don't know. I would say that uh, I would say that the, the rally stops pretty soon is, 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 is my base case. I don't know. It's just, it's, that's just, that's just what, what I would say. Mm. Um, and I, I think in banks, You've had, I think banks, I mean, in retrospect, it was an obvious buying opportunity. Um, we'll see about First Republic and uh, Pac Pacific West Bank Corp, which report uh, next Monday and next Tuesday. Uh, we'll see about the deposit flights. Those are really probably the most beleaguered banks uh, that had not failed, you know. Um, so there's some sort of wood to be chopped. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, don't know. I tend to agree with. You. I think this. So I've, you know, this is a chart that we've been, you know, uh, shown on 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 this show a number of times. But this is just we're looking at a little bit of a zoomed in version here. But the U.S. terminal rate. So this is basically, and what we're looking at is the zoomed in period from your March tremor jack to to now. And this is this is the expectation of where ultimately rates are going to peak. And we've chopped around on this quite a bit. And you can see that the terminal rate at one point peaked at five point eight percent. After the banking crisis, it dove down. Uh, you know, post banking, the banking tremor in March, we saw the two-year cross the uh, Fed funds futures, which is you know a pretty reliable sign, at least historically, that the Fed is going to start to they their hiking cycle is over and they're going to start to cut rates. But now we kind of see this terminal rate just sort of grind back up. And you know, to your to your the the credit of your sort of point of view here that you're talking about. I would agree. I think the market has basically ever since the Fed first started to hike rates, which was a surprise you know, to many market participants at the time, 
who thought the Fed could never hike rates and that that amount is way too high. They've been, the market has sort of consistently wanted the Fed to ease sooner than the Fed was ready to do. And they've been sort of consistently wrong about that. So looking at that chart of the terminal rate right now, it again kind of reminds me of that impulse where the market is again trying to cry uncle. They're trying to tap out. They really want that pivot from the Federal Reserve, but it doesn't look like the Fed is is ready to tap out yet. And Jay Powell, for for all of the the flack that he gets, he's had a very hard job to do. And I think he's done the thing that he's needed to do when we've had inflation, which is to get up there and say, we are, you know, we're gonna stay here until the job is done. And I think if he committed one sin, it was that FOMC around, I think it was the February. FOMC, mm-hmm. where it looked like he thought he was going to get his soft landing, and he was a little bit dovish. I think you and I did the did the yep. post FOMC uh, breakdown with with Jim with Bianco, Jim. Yep. who was also n- none too impressed about the the job that Chair Powell did. And uh, but yeah, it, it looks like the Fed still believes that they've got that they've got work to do, and that rates are going to be higher for you know higher than people want, but. But I still do think that the majority of the the hiking cycle is behind us. So I, I actually shake out a little little less cautious than you. I would say I have a slightly rosier rosier view of the the short to midterm. But I guess on well, so on risk assets, sure. But I agree with you. Well, I, I I'm not someone who thinks the Fed rates are going to go to six percent or seven percent. I think it's yeah, a twenty five basis point hike in May, and then I think the Fed is done, and we can call that a pivot. You know, people who've been following my work. You know, they they know, you know, and me on the you know, advice of Joseph Wang, advice of you know my lawyer Joseph Wang, who I think does have a law <laughs> degree. That you know, yeah. we have not been using the pivot word at all. Like people people were calling pivot as soon as the rate hiking started a year ago. People were talking about a pivot, and uh, you know, I've been pretty cautious to 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 break the glass and press that button, and I haven't, but I am now, and it's it's there's it, I think it's going to be a pivot, and yeah, I think May is going to be the last. Rate hike, uh, maybe maybe one in June, we'll see. But this is the this is the hard thing. It's always we'll see, you know. And then it's oh well, we'll one pivot in in June. Oh well, why not do one in September? And suddenly you're at six percent. So who knows? Uh, I think I think the Fed is not going to cut. I I, I look, I'm doing the same thing I said earlier. Like all, this trade has already happened, but there were rate cuts that were priced into the market uh, shortly after the fall of Silicon Valley Bank. That were just ridiculous in, in terms of like, oh, the Fed is going to cut five times, which would be like a cut at pretty much every single meeting. That trade hasn't happened, and that's why you'd see the terminal rate go up. And that, in that in- incredibly zoomed out chart that we just showed on on screen, that was a very short term chart, and the huge crash was the crash in the terminal rate, which is the 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 rate the market thinks how high the Fed will get. So, a uh, bad economy, banking crisis, banking tremor. No, then it was a crisis. You know, the Fed can't get, uh, won't be able to hike rates that much more. Uh, and then they advanced higher. So those rate cuts have been priced out of the market. That said, we do have a super inverted curve, and uh, it's it's less inverted. But but yeah, that, and and look, you can ignore the curve for so long, but eventually, I think the curve will win. Yeah, I agree with you. Maybe, maybe we can uh, Jack just close on this. Is you know one bit of uh, you know our our fearless. Uh, producer will is is based out of the UK, and you know we've been talking a little bit in our our private Slack about the the uh, inflation rate that's going on over in the UK. So while it seems like you know people can debate about how long things are going to take over in the United States, 
at, at least we we've seen the trend for for many months now has been disinflation and the fed has its own particular view of sort of super core inflation that it pays attention to but generally you know we're we're starting to see headline CPI and core CPI roll off. And there's some debate about how sticky it's going to be and what the level that it's ultimately going to get down to is, but the trend is lower. The trend over in the United Kingdom has been, it still feels like it is red hot over there. And you know, whenever I think of the European central banks, be it the ECB or the Bank of England, they have a little bit less latitude, say, than the Fed over here in the United States, which really sets the, the broad direction of monetary policy I would say for the global central banking apparatus, uh, although I guess the PBOC sometimes doesn't necessarily do what what the Fed is doing. Any thoughts? Any kind of closing thoughts about like why is it so so sticky, so hot over there, and how much latitude do they really have to to move and and fight inflation? So to be honest, I haven't dug that you know deep into it. I know it was I think ten point one percent. Yeah, that's pretty hot. But I haven't. I mean, wait, do we have do we have the chart? Let's see. Um yeah, so this is this is for the UK. Uh yeah, housing and household services are up 27 26%, food up 19%, restaurants up 11%, total CPI up 10%, education quote only up 3%. Yeah, I mean wow, that's a it's a big inflationary boom. I mean maybe is is inflation more entrenched in the UK than it is in the US? I I don't know. I mean it seems like it. Certainly, I don't, I don't know where this is coming from. I mean, energy, you know that I, that that's one sort of obvious cause, but I don't know. I mean, look, the U.S. wasn't the only country that printed money. It was not. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so, I guess what we'll have to see our our uh, you know thoughts and prayers are are <laughs> for for our for our uh, you know brothers and sisters across the pond. So, I guess we'll have to see how that situation plays out. So. Yeah. All right, Jack. Any any other big topics that you want to cover this point? Yeah. So the short term funding market is sending us a signal mm. that is on the spectrum of a total nothing burger to a doomsday clock. Okay. Uh, so the one month Treasury bill is yielding much much lower than th- the three months Treasury bill or a similar sort of interest rate swap. So. If you know, if you can get it, you swap with the bank or park it at the Fed and you can get four point seven six percent, what do you think the one month Treasury is going to get? Four point seven seven, four point seven five. You know, pretty similar. Things balance right. out, but the demand for one month Treasury bills has been so high that it's now yielding you know well over hundred basis points. So three point seven six, three point five. So it's very very low things, and that's you know we are we are quite low in terms of the spread between the one month Treasury bill minus the effective federal funds rate hasn't been this low since two thousand and eight. Doesn't sound great, may not be great, may be horrible, but it could be nothing. And uh, several sort of you know, experts in this matter, uh, Scott Skirm, who's been on the show, Andy Constant, Scott said, April is a season where this tends to happen. And because I'm presumed because of ta- taxes and then also the debt ceiling uh, that I really don't understand the me- mechanics, but that this is because of the, the debt ceiling. Actually, no, I, I do. That the uh, people, the one, one month bill, is very unlikely to mature after or during the debt ceiling crisis tremor uh, and, and such so so that like it's kind of free and clear where sort of everything else has kind of like a you know a scarlet letter on it and so that's why it's yielding higher so there's a premium put on short-term paper that will sort of be completely free 
of the the debt ceiling drama. Um, I, you know, later today I'll be speaking to Jeff Snyder, who I think has a much more pessimistic uh, outlook on that. And mm-hmm. you know, the chart that we're we're showing now uh, doesn't look great, but but it could be a nothing burger. Could be a nothing burger. So yeah, we'll we'll close on that. <laughs> cool. Well, if you had to, I mean, the, you know, this this stuff is always a little bit tricky for for me to diligence as well when it comes to, um, you know, almost the area of sort of monetary plumbing and and what these sort of signals mean. If you, I mean, just for for listeners, could you like kind of handicap like the because you know you see those sort of scary red dots around the two thousand seven two thousand eight crisis, and certainly to me, whenever you see you know intense you know ex- extreme demand for bills around the very short end of the curve. That to me says people are are going very risk off for for one particular reason or another, right? They want basically the safest, shortest duration collateral that they possibly can. So, any any thoughts on you know if you had to handicap, is this you know in that in that camp that people are for some reason panicking, or the market might know something that we don't, or hey, there there are sort of outliers that happen all the time. This might be sort of uh, some sort of gut reaction to the the debt ceiling you know drama that I'm sure we're all going to be talking about in one month. You know, what are your kind of thoughts between those two? Um, I, I so I think it's called causally overdetermined when there's some event and like there's seven possible reasons for it. Mm-hmm. I think the debt ceiling argument definitely could be causing it, and it could be causing a large percentage of it. In other words, the rush for safe collateral is not because of the banking crisis, the ma- banking tremor, but because of the the debt ceiling. The truth, the truth is. I really don't know. I mean, it's it's not looking it's not looking great. Um, it's it's not looking great. I don't think it's a two thousand eight type moment. Uh, but yeah, it's not it's not like a positive. Yeah, I would definitely not. It's that. definitely not a positive. Definitely I mean, not a positive. Yeah, you, that's yeah. the only thing we can say for certain is that it's not positive. <laughs> All right, with that uh, rosy prediction, Jack, I think we can we can end it. Uh, always love doing the the forward marginal guidance mashup. It's always a, a pleasure for me and. Uh, I'm sure we'll do it again soon. Yeah, pleasure as always. Thanks, Mike. Cheers, partner. 